Okay, we are studying the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 9. The main theme, if you haven't been with us for all the studies, the main theme in chapter 9 is the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice as compared to the sacrifices that were offered in the old, under the Old Covenant. And the blood atonement that we're studying here, Jesus died once for all. His life, poured out life, the blood signifies poured out life, is done to pay the penalty for sins. So we have the idea of a substitutionary atonement, which is going to be the sermon this morning. I'm going to, I have the privilege of preaching to you from Genesis 22 about uh, God calling Abraham to bring Isaac up on, the, on Mount Moriah. Fantastic section. I, I really spent all week studying. I never usually spend that much time on a sermon, but this one was so intriguing. In fact, I was finishing it up out of KKMS. I drove Jesse out there to record Jan's show because I didn't want her driving her out in a blizzard. And so I sat and finished my sermon while Jan was on the radio, <laughs> right in their studio. So, yeah. Oh, last Sunday I preached uh, the gospel in Stillwater to a, a wonderful congregation that's hungry for the Word of God, that very well received, and kindred people that they're a lot like us. They have a group a lot like us, and so God has His flocks here and there. Yeah, He sure does. So there's one in Stillwater. Okay, we're on verse 21, Hebrews 9:21, and in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with blood. There was a, right now, the author of Hebrews is reiterating what happened in the tabernacle in the Old Testament and what Moses did and the different things that they had to do that involved sprinkling blood and making sacrifice. And the tabernacle was cleansed with blood, pointing out the need for a blood atonement. So here um, is a passage for somebody to read, why don't we uh, start over here? Sam, could you read Leviticus sixteen nineteen to, or excuse me, fourteen to nineteen? Leviticus sixteen fourteen to nineteen. I think this is a description of what they did in the, under the old covenant. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. 
and shall take some of the blood of the bull and of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar on all sides. With his finger he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times and cleanse it and from the, and from the impurities of the sons of Israel consecrate it. Okay, that was a lot of uh, blood atonement. Now, part of the reason we do these cross, so many of these cross references is that I want to teach the whole Bible, and I probably wouldn't get to Leviticus verse by verse by verse by verse by verse because in a lifetime there's not enough time to expound for the most part. But by doing these cross references, we're learning the rest of the Bible. Okay, now this thing in Leviticus that uh, Sam was just reading to us. Very uh, important. The idea of the book of Leviticus is the need for holiness. And, the, and that God is an awesome, holy, pure God. And that even the tabernacle itself, because it was constructed by men, even the holiest place, even the mercy seat, everything that was there had been defiled by the impurities of sinners. That's what he was reading about, because of the impurities. So even the vessels that were used to serve God had to be purified with blood themselves, even the ark and everything else. So this process that Sam was reading about had to be done first before they could make atonement for the people. And if you lived back then, you would have seen all this blood continually being shed. And... The idea that was imprinted on their minds and in their hearts was that God is a holy, perfectly pure God. And that we, if we're going to come into His presence, we need to be cleansed. Otherwise, we're not fit to be in His presence. Okay? That's the whole concept of Leviticus. Now, imagine all that they had to do... Are these lights going... I thought it was me. <laughs> okay. Anyhow, the you imagine all those years that they did that, and they had to continually do it. And then now, what's being said here is that Jesus did a better sacrifice that actually takes away sins, doesn't just cover them, and he did it once for all, Amen. and he did it in a better sanctuary. He went right into heaven itself, so that you don't end up having a defiled sanctuary that has to be cleansed over and over again because you have a perfectly holy sanctuary in heaven, not defiled by sinners, and there's this once-for-all shedding of blood. So how, why is this important? Because for all the work this was, they were tempted to go back to it because of struggling with faith. Because you can't see the heavenly sanctuary. You can't see Jesus. You have to believe by faith that all this is done and, and come to him in that regard. And people love pomp and circumstance. Okay. Is it just me? There's something wrong. Probably, I wonder if one of the switches is going bad. Anyhow, um, it's not good when that happens. It's not a good sign for your electrical circuit. Um, so... For example, I know we often pick on Rome, but it's a pretty good example of, of how people are. <coughs> the, um, the Roman Catholic Church basically recreated a system like this, all right, that like what they had in the Old Testament with the priesthood and with ceremonies and cleansings and sprinklings and 
and and actually their blood, so they claim, you know, with their doctrine of, trans, of transubstantiation. And look at how popular. How many Catholics are there? A billion. A billion. Yeah, why is that popular? Well, because it cre- people have a hard time believing God. They want to see something. They want a holy man. They want somebody to uh, do something that they can tangibly see rather than coming to God by faith. Yes? Bob, a question. Um, in reading this yesterday, I was wondering about if we sprinkle that table and everything on it with blood, time after time after time, was it cleaned again? Or, you know, blood is supposed to clean, and yet if we get blood on something... You don't want to leave it there. Yet. You know what I'm saying? I wonder. That, I, you know what? I never thought of that. Blood, they wouldn't be gold very long unless they were once again clean. I mean, outwardly. I wonder. I, you know, I, I, ha, I don't, I never thought of that. They may have cleaned up yeah, things. It's just kind of one of those, what you would call an oxymoron. Like blood on something would not. Yeah, it doesn't clean it physically. It cleans it spiritually. Okay, that's an interesting point. Well, let's go to verse 22, Hebrews 9:22. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Now, this is an important uh, idea that you find all the way through the Bible. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And there needs to be the shedding of blood. So, that's why I'm thinking of the sermon that, that we're going to have today about how Abraham obediently is bringing Isaac up to Mount Moriah and not sure what's going to happen other than his faith that God would provide. And he did. He provided the ram, but there needed to be a shedding of blood. And later in the law, after Abraham, every firstborn was to be the Lord's, but child sacrifice is forbidden. And so they had to bring an animal as a substitute for their firstborn. Okay? And so the idea of a substitutionary atonement is all through the Old Testament. That you needed a substitute. And it, and it begins with this Isaac story. Speaking about the, the blood again, there's another verse that says that the life is in the blood. Yes. I find, find it very interesting that as humans, our life, uh, we have life because of the blood within us. Yeah. When we are transformed into our heavenly bodies, it's going to be flesh and bone and no blood is mentioned. Huh. Yeah, in Luke it says that, doesn't it? I don't know how it works. Jesus, Jesus evidently did it for us, so we don't yeah. need it anymore. Yeah. Well, how could the Catholic Church ever, they think they can reproduce, they couldn't even uh, fulfill the old covenant to be sinless, to go into the inner sanctuary, yet in the new covenant they dare to say they're turning it into the literal blood and, and uh, flesh of Christ, and there are a pack of sinners trying to do that. God would allow that when Pastor said he just went into the sanctuary for a better, uh, you know, how could it ever be? So we were so blinded as Catholics that think they were turning it into the literal. And, and I'm sorry, the guy up there would have been a molester or whatever, a drunkard or whatever he was. In the old covenant, he wouldn't have been able to go in there. He'd have been dragged out dead. So many of the times are being performed by a pack of sinners. A pack of sinners is turning it into the literal blood and blood of flesh of Christ. What blasphemy? Well, it's, Who do they think they are? 
But that's the way this world is. It's, uh, it's uh, Satan, pride. No, he no, isn't. no, they I think yes. they are. Well, my point though is that some drunkards. I'm sorry, some of them were drunkards had and and, and up there going to turn that in. How would you even do it in the old covenant? God would have killed the high priest coming there drunk and going to be uh, uh, turning doing this. He couldn't. The Catholic Church can't even fulfill the old covenant as far as what should be done. Well, you know the sad thing, Dan, is that they're just deluded because of centuries of traditions. Traditions and. Uh, I think my, my point is the, the reason that it even it started in the first place was this human unbelief that has to see all the pomp and circumstance and religious ceremony to think something's happening, because yes. Jesus—it's the same thing in Hebrews. Why they why did they want to go back? That's see, just think about that. Why were they tempted to go back so that it was necessary to write the epistle to the Hebrews? Because of this tangible issue. That's why it says in Hebrews 11. Uh, faith is the evidence of things not seen. They can't see Jesus. They can't see the high priest. They can't see the blood. They can't see any of these things. It's all in heaven. And so you have to believe God. And so here you have this earthly high priest that if you lived in Jerusalem, you could go down and watch him do on the Day of Atonement. And he had this gorgeous robe and all the glitter. And, and, and it looked like, wow, this, is, this, you know, this really looks like something. What do you Christians have? Well, we just kind of gather in a home and we pray. Oh, okay. I, you see the same thing with the cathedrals, the pomp, and the red pointy hats. You know, have you ever seen these cardinals? I mean, people are just like, oh. And and but the Bible says we have this this treasure in earthen vessels, and we don't have to embellish it. We don't have to try to make any pomp or circumstance or a man-made ceremony. In the simple gospel that we have is what God uses to transform lives. And the blood of Jesus, we don't see it. it. It's not some metaphysical entity. There are some people that plead the blood of their car uh, so that they won't go get in an accident. They're not understanding. The point of the blood is to wash away our sins. And it was to what lay down life of Jesus once for all. If we it, Pray. If you want to, if you're worried about your trip, pray, get in your car, but you don't need to plead the blood over it. Um, it says here, uh, all things are cleansed. All things are cleansed with blood. There's a term in here um, for for this, and uh, in the Greek, and it says this. This word, amatek. Kusia may have been coined by the writer as a comprehensive term for the application of blood. Jewish sources indicate that in a cultic, again that means their prescribed religion, context, the reference is not to the slaying of the sacrificial animals, but to the final disposal of the blood upon the altar in order to effect atonement. So there was this act of putting, of application of blood. So there is this application that is done in the, in the prescribed manner that removes the defilement ceremonially in the Old Testament. Amen. Okay. I have one passage here. Norma, could you read uh, Leviticus 17.11? Leviticus 17.11. Hi, Ryan. <laughs> now the babies can play with each other, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, company. 
Okay, uh, when you get to it, uh, Leviticus 17 and 11. Uh, I know, you know, anytime you go to a new one, it takes longer to find anything. I notice that. That's why I use my computer when I just type it in and it goes right to it every time. Okay, go ahead. Okay, that was that, uh, what Dean was, yeah, you were mentioning, the life is in the blood. And so the blood signifies the laid down life or, or, or poured out life. And that's the key to the issue of the blood of Jesus. It's his poured out life that God accepted as the sacrifice for sins. God accepted that blood uh, once for all. And you would think that the once for all would be an exciting improvement. Yeah, amen. It's, but in, in people's sinfulness, they're not satisfied with that. They want to create some sacrificial system that we do, some human work system. But God doesn't accept human works, and He doesn't accept any sacrifice but this one that was done once for all. He won't accept anything else. No. And so we'll, uh, we better preach on this, otherwise people won't know how to get saved. Why they? does mankind think he can complete the sacrifice? It's, it's a sin nature. It's just a sinner. It's a sin nature. That we, we trust in man. I've said this often. Faith, the definition of faith, is putting one's tr- hope and trust completely in God Amen. on His terms. Amen. You know what unbelief is? It's not a failure to believe, period. It's putting your faith in man. Amen. Because unbelief always is putting faith... Everybody puts faith in something. So we either put faith in man or faith in God. And that's why it says, Blessed is the man who trusts in God. Cursed is the man who trusts in man. So the reason we have all the world religions is that people are always going to put trust in man in some ways. And so all the world religions teach the same thing. All right, let's go to Hebrews 9.23. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. All right, so we have here a contrast. If you weren't here earlier when we were studying some of the other verses in chapter 8 and 9, the Bible claims in the Old Testament that the tabernacle that Moses constructed was a copy of the heavenly one. Of which it was just a pattern that God gave Moses that was a copy. So the idea is if the copies, which would be the Old Testament tabernacle, were cleansed with blood, but the heavenly are uh, with better sacrifices than these. So there's something better about the heavenly tabernacle and something better about the sacrifice that was brought to it. So there's a heavenly reality here that we need to know about. Okay, the, the question is, what's the difference between the tabernacle of Moses and the temple of Solomon? And, well, the, the, the tabernacle was created according to this very clear pattern, all right, that Moses received from God. Amen. And it was very detailed, the pattern of how it needed to be. And one of the things, obviously, about the tabernacle, it was a tent, it was movable. They were wandering in the wilderness when they had it. Okay. Now the temple's permanent, and 
we don't know as much about the pattern. I think the main thing that the temple had was it still had the holiest place and it had the compartments for the priest to go in. But I don't know if we had the same detailed pattern. Okay. Now, the temple that they had, that Solomon built, was destroyed by the Babylonians in... Uh, uh, no, no. 518? 586, yeah. Um, and so that was destroyed. And then Ezra and Nehemiah went to rebuild it, but they never really got much done. They basically got the minimal done so they could get the priestly ministry going. But they didn't have a lot of resources, and they were always battling the uh, inhabitants there, the Samaritans. That's how the Samaritan conflict got started. And so they didn't have much. Herod the Great who was alive at the time when Jesus was born, was the one who, tra- who killed the babies in Bethlehem. Herod the Great had taken that rebuilt tabernacle or temple and he embellished it and made it into a magnificent structure. So the temple that was in operation at the time of Jesus Christ was by far uh, superior to anything they'd ever had. Probably greater than what Solomon built. Because Herod had huge resources and he had all these people to do the work for him. And he made quite, I mean, he, he built a lot of interesting places. He's always paranoid somebody's going to kill him. So he had fortresses, several different parts of Israel, so he could hide or, or feel safe, including one in Caesarea. So the second temple, as it's called, was a magnificent thing. And it's described, parts of it are described in the Bible, including the court of the Gentiles and the various things like that. Now, that one was the one that was destroyed in 70 A.D., okay? That was destroyed by the Romans and was never rebuilt. The site now has this Dome of the Rock that was built by the Muslims. Um, I was just reading about that this last week. The date. It's a long time ago. It's like 1,000 A.D. or so. That's a very, very old structure, that Dome of the Rock. It's been, it's been kept, kept up. Um, and the site is probably the same place where Abraham brought Isaac to sacrifice him, Mount Moriah. And it's called that, and I'm going to talk about that this morning. So it's very interesting history. So they don't. So they tell them don't go. Yeah. It's, that's interesting. So they still have the same issue today. You're not clean. Don't go there anyhow. Um, of course, we know that the that the truth is that we need to come to God through Jesus. Okay, so the heavenly, uh, so we were talking about the tabernacle, the temple, and the heavenly pattern. By the way, it, it, Hebrews, when it discusses, it sort of blends the two together. Sometimes it's talking here in Hebrews about 
things that would be true about the tabernacle of Moses. Sometimes it's talking about things that would be true of the temple. But it kind of just blends them together. All right, let's look up some cross-references. Um, I'm going to have some, need some help with names. You want to, who's next to Norma? Jess? Jesse. Could you do John 14 and 3? And then again, I need help. Lisa. Okay, sorry. I wish I had a better memory. Do you want to do one, Lisa? All right. Luke 24, 26. Gerald. Uh, Colossians 2, 17. Pete, you got your Bible there? You got one. All right. Hebrews 10, 4. Hebrews 10, 4. And then uh, Judah, 1 Peter 1, 19 to 21. And Denise. All right. See, it takes a few weeks. For new people and they click in. It's actually the reason, part of the reason I like doing this is everybody gets to meet one another about what your name is. All right. Revelation 5 9. Okay. Uh, John 14 and verse, uh, Jesse 14 3. John 14 Yes, that's an important passage because it's about Jesus going to heaven to prepare a place for us and that we would go to be with him. And so don't ever let a Jehovah Witness confuse you. They'll come by and they'll say, where does the Bible say you're going to go to heaven? And most of the time you can't find a verse where it says you're going to go to heaven. But it, but it says it right there. And so if they come by, now everybody here needs to remember this. Jehovah Witnesses come by. Go to John 14. <laughs> okay. And read it to them. Where did Jesus go? To heaven. Where is he going to bring us? To heaven. All right. Because they want to tell you you can't go to heaven. Here's another thing you can say to them. I, I saw T.A. McMahon uh, wrote a little article on this. And I guess he does this. I've done it myself. Here's another thing you can say. They'll, so they'll come by and they tell you you can't go to heaven. And um, so you see this. Okay, so here's the... Uh, let me... Ex- Repeat what you're trying to tell me, Mr. Mr. or Mrs. Jehovah Witness. You're trying to tell me that if I renounce my faith and join the Watchtower Society and spend the rest of my life going door to door passing out Watchtower tracts, then when I get all done, I don't get to go to heaven. Is that the deal? Uh, well, uh, yeah. Okay. So, so, but instead, I can trust Jesus Christ. I don't have to spend the rest of my life being a slave to the Watchtower Society, and I do get to go to heaven. I don't like your deal. <laughs> go away. Only 144,000 can go to Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so, Lisa? Okay, uh, you had Luke 24, 26? Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter the glory? So Jesus went and entered the heavenly sanctuary. And Gerald, Colossians 2.17. Okay, let's talk about the difference between the shadow and the substance. So the things on the earth that were 
part of the tabernacle or temple service or shadow. The substance is heavenly where Christ is. Shadow and substance ideas is used several times in Colossians, which is, uh, well, I don't want to get into that. That's an interesting study in itself about why that's in Colossians, but it had to do with these false teachers who uh, were influenced by incipient Gnosticism. Hebrews 10.4. Pete. All right. The blood of bulls and goats doesn't take away sins. 1 Peter 1, 19 to 21. Amen. Amen. That's a good gospel section of the scriptures, the 1 Peter 1. Precious blood of Jesus made us cleansed. Then Revelation 5 and verse 9. Well, that's a that's a song in heaven. That's that's the glory of the gospel that that the blood of Jesus redeems people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and that ultimately, when we're gathered together in glory, we're going to uh, be joining together with all these redeemed that have been uh, uh, rescued out of their sins. And there's this huge heavenly chorus, the multitudes that are seeing, and I don't know exactly, we don't know the, exactly what it'll be like, but we know that God is honored in, in as much as He has representative worshipers from all these tribes. It's one of the reasons for the Great Commission in the Gospel. God is uh, desiring all nations would come and worship. Amen. So, that's, that's a great passage. Alright, Hebrews 9, 20, Four, for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Amen. Wow. So now we have Messiah in God's very presence interceding on our behalf. He atones for our sins. He appears before God for us. So we have a perpetual high priest who is always giving us this access to God because we're still sinners. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, yeah, defense attorney. That's one of the things, uh, advocate, paraclete, that's, is used of both the Holy Spirit and of Jesus. In First uh, in John, it's about Jesus, yes. Because Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Yep. He constantly accuses us day and night, but God points towards His Son, Jesus Christ, to shed blood. Our God has given us His righteousness. So Satan is constantly accusing the brethren. Thank God we have eternal security. You know what, Dan? Also, that's what, that passage where it calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. It says they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb. And so when we come under accusation or condemnation, uh, what do we say? That's, that's why it's so fatal to start trusting self. Because if we trust self, Satan accuses us, says you're a sinner, well, what are you going to say? <laughs> I guess I am. <laughs> you need the blood, yes. Yes, Steve. It's interesting. I see that Christ entered 
point that he entered heaven, or why is this, this uh, scripture pointing out that he entered heaven when, before time began, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, God, was already in heaven. So is this just signifying that he came to earth and then went back to heaven? Yeah, it, 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 this, what the scripture is saying is that, yeah, he preexisted as God and with God in heaven, right? But when he came in the incarnation and took on the form of man, which Philippians 2 teaches us, he, uh, he, this role of high priest, I believe, is something that's tied to the incarnation, as I understand it, right? Because he needs to be a man to be the high priest. And also a man in order to pay the, for the sins of man, to be an acceptable uh, substitute. So he came as man, although not laying aside his divinity, and died as a man, shed his blood as a man, and was raised from bodily from the grave, and then he ascended as the incarnate one with the march of Calvary. Now, we happen to have an expert who wrote a book on this back here. So, uh, Ryan, what do you have to say about it? Exactly. Eternal scars. He's forever human. That's what we, I mean, that's amazing that he can be He's not just, he wasn't just human when he came on earth here. And a lot of people, you know, erroneously think that, that when he when he when glorified, he stopped being human. He is eternally the God man. Amen. Amen. And intercede and, and carry out this eternal high priestly ministry. Yes, Tyler. In terms of just what descended versus ascended means, can we use like Ephesians 4? What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to lower earthly regions? And then he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all heavens in order to fill the whole universe? Yeah, that, that's an um, allusion to one of the Psalms in Ephesians 4. Now, part of, I mentioned earlier, there's some background about this. 
Oh, I got to turn this down. Part of the issue in Ephesians and Colossae had to do with false beliefs that the pagans had that were getting into the church. And they had ideas about deity that were false. And one of the ideas was that um, deity uh, could not be despoiled by material things. All right, And so the argument in Ephesians have to do with the fact that Jesus, um, and in Colossians, that Jesus w- w- indeed had a real body, and he wasn't defiled, and some of the terminology is borrowed from these false teachers in order to refute them. So the, there's, there's some good work done by a guy named Clinton Arnold, who explains the backgrounds to what all those issues were. But there's a reason why it says that. But you're right. He descended, ascended. Yes? Um, in uh, the NIV here, it says about, I looked up the word presence. Now it says, it appears for us in God's presence. And I looked up presence. And I, in the Greek, it's or something like that, but it means the part towards or around the eye, in the face. So Jesus isn't just talking to God and God is just listening. He has his face. Yeah, actually that that word uh, can be translated face to face. And that's been pointed out before that God, that Jesus is face to face with God. <laughs> Amen. Well, so Jesus uh, appears in the presence of God for us. So the true one is the heavenly one. And so we have a contrast with the heavenly and the earthly. And the dwelling place of God itself in heaven is where Jesus went on our behalf. Okay, um, let's start back over here. Pat, could you do Psalm 68:18? And Noel, Luke 24:51, Dennis... John two nineteen to twenty one and Carolyn John sixteen twenty eight Tyler Acts one nine to eleven we've got a lot of cross references for this passage um, Leif Acts three twenty one Kathy Ephesians one twenty to twenty two Camp Colossians 3, 1 and 2. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. And uh, Norm, 1 Peter 3, 22. And Laurie, 1 John 2, 1 and 2. There's a lot of cross-references, so I guess this must be an important verse. Uh, Psalm 68, 18. You have ascended on high. You have read captives your captives. You have received gifts among men. That's the one that Tyler was asking about. That's the very psalm that is quoted in Ephesians 4, or alluded to in Ephesians 4. Alright, I knew it was a psalm, now we know what it was. <laughs> psalm 68:18. Okay, Luke 24:51. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into so Jesus ascended before, and there were witnesses to this. And this is important, that there was witnesses. There was witnesses to his resurrection. There was witnesses to his ascension. So Luke 
2451 said that they saw him ascend. Amen. He's going to return again. Amen. And he'll be seen. Amen. We don't have a mystical Jesus. Okay, uh, John 2, 19 to 21. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So Jesus predicted his own resurrection. And his body, he's talking about his body, and they thought he's talking about the actual temple itself. His critics brought that up when they were trying to find grounds to, to have him crucified. They quoted that, and they were basically accusing him of sorcery before the high priest, or before the Sanhedrin. They brought that up. But it, it's interesting, though, and in so doing, they, they are providing evidence that Jesus had predicted his own resurrection. Even his critics heard him do it. The critics said that he did made that statement. If you want to read a book that, that talks about this that was written a hundred years ago, there's a book called Who Moved the Stone by Morrison. It's an outstanding book. He was a, a lawyer who was a skeptic and investigated the evidence for the resurrection and through his investigation became a Christian and he wrote this book. And it's all based on just the Gospel of Mark. Because Mark is one that the critics are willing to concede is probably the most authentic gospel. Let's say you're a higher critic and you doubt. Like, if you quote John to the critics, they don't buy John. They think it was made different. But Mark is obviously the oldest gospel. So Morrison took Mark and proved from that, using evidence, the resurrection. Yes? Yeah. So there's a there where as we see throughout the Gospels that uh, when he was crucified, that the veil was torn in two. Amen. And just before, on the Olivet Discourse, just before he was crucified, he predicted the destruction of the temple. Amen. So first the veil's torn, then the temple, some years later, is demolished. And there's a greater one, there's Jesus, that so we can go to. And I believe, personally, I believe, that, and I preach this, that the temple will be rebuilt. But... No, that is not. It won't be rebuilt because people need it to come to God. It'll be rebuilt because Antichrist needs it to set himself up as the abomination of desolation. Okay, uh, so there you go. The Jews knew that Christ has been raised from the dead. That's why they posted guards. They don't post guards. They knew that he said he was going to yeah, raise from the right. dead, so they posted guards because they knew. One of the things that's interesting, if you read apologetic material proving the resurrection, is that one thing everybody agreed on was that there was an empty tomb. Amen. Okay. Some may have said the body was stolen, or they came, they may have had some... There's the swoon theory. Jesus took this vinegar, and he became unconscious, and then he, and then he resuscitated and snuck out of the... You know, I mean, there's all kinds of... That one's been discredited, but, but it's interesting that everybody agreed 
that they didn't have a body and that they had an empty tomb. Amen. And and so the that's part of the proof of the resurrection, the evidence for the resurrection. Okay, so that was John two. Then we had John sixteen twenty eight. I think Tyler had that. I didn't. Oh, I'm sorry. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Very clear, isn't it? Came from the Father, entered the world, leaving the world, going back to the Father. Exactly. That's we need to know that. It's very important. Acts one. That's what Tyler had. Acts one nine to eleven. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, and suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you to heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go to heaven. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Yeah, Acts 1, I, I love the book of Acts. Wouldn't it be fun to have time to teach you Acts? Um, it's, it's interesting, the way Acts is, I just love the way Acts is laid out. It, Acts 1 basically lays out what Acts is going to be about. And so they're, they're watching Jesus ascend into heaven, and the angels told him, don't worry, he's going to come back the same way, in the clouds, as it says in Matthew and, and uh, elsewhere. And... But in the meantime, they're given this promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit and that, so that they would be witnesses. And so it's the job of the church, knowing Jesus bodily ascended into heaven, that he's coming again. It's the job of the church to be his witnesses between those two events. Amen. From, the, from that ascension to his return, Amen. we are to be witnesses. That's what, that's what Acts was about. Amen. That we're to preach the gospel and to warn people. Because when Jesus comes back, if you're not right with Him, rather than to go to be with Him, you're going to come under judgment. Amen. You're going to come under the wrath of God. Amen. All right. So the the world thinks it's a bunch of fables, and they they don't want to listen to it. But it's our our job. This this will just make your life so much easier. And I, I think you can understand this because we've emphasized it here. It's not our job to somehow make Christianity appealing so people will come to it by whatever, you know, for whatever reason. It's our job to be witnesses. It's our job to explain the truth clearly. Amen. And those, knowing that most people are going to reject it because the Gospels all say that, most people rejected Jesus when he was actually here doing miracles. Amen. Okay? That's that's okay. We understand that, but it's our job to preach the gospel so that God will use it to save people from all these tribes to gather together these worshipers that we read about earlier that are going to be there in heaven. Amen. From all the tribes, and God will use this gospel to gather out from the mass of the sinful world worshipers who will come to Him in faith. Amen. We have no reason to change anything. Preach it the way it is. That's my message. Preach it the way it is. I don't have to. I don't have to dress up Jesus and make him look better to the pagan mind. Amen. They can either accept him based on the facts of the Gospels or not. Amen. If not, okay. So, go on. Keep preaching it. There's no other. But see what we're doing today is we're changing it so people come in. They don't really know the facts about Jesus. They just think he's some religious leader or some nice person that's going to give him a better life. Todd Friel, I was listening to Todd Friel the other day, and it was pretty funny. He, he takes these dumb preachers 
and plays this thing on there. So he's playing this preacher who was saying, you, if you, you, if you come to Jesus, you're going to have a, a better marriage. You and your wife will be, have a wonderful Christian marriage. Come to Jesus. And he was selling all this, selling everybody a bill of goods. And so then Todd shuts the thing off and says, Any, anybody out there ever come to Jesus and have their wife leave them? <laughs> you know, yes. So he, he, Todd, Todd kept saying, this is a bill of goods. You, you, you may have a better Christian marriage or your wife, now that you're a Christian, may get mad and, and, and leave you and you'll end up without a wife. Tell them the truth. Don't sell them a bill of goods. So he was, he was pretty good. I, I liked it. So, Okay. Um, Acts 3.21, Lay. Whom heaven must receive until the time of the restoration of all things, spoken about by the prophets. prophets. <coughs> <coughs> Boy, I blasted the recording there. I used that one in the debate with uh, Pastor Chansky. And by the way, I preached at Pastor Chansky's church. What a delightful group they were. They just loved the gospel. So, even though we debated, we agree on everything but the end times. And we even agree on some of that. I preached on the end times at his church. I said, Jesus Christ is coming again and he's going to bring judgment. Amen. Well, they agree, they believe that. So, <clears throat> that much. So, um, as a matter of fact, that is a strong premillennial verse. Because Peter was preaching to Jews, and he says that heaven must receive until the time of the restoration of all things spoken of by the prophets. Well, what did the prophets speak about that would have to do with restoration? Ryan says the restoration of Israel. What else could it be? What else? If it was something else, Peter is misleading these Jewish people by telling them that he is going to come and bring a restoration that was promised by the prophets. Yes? Kingdom to Israel. Yeah. Yeah, and and even more so if you take Luke Acts as 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 two volumes of one writing, which I which it is, you go into Luke and they were asking about the same thing, and, and Jesus made promises. I have a, a book written by a guy named Tannehill, the Literary Unity of Luke Acts. I don't even know if Tannehill's an evangelical, but he's a fantastic person to say, here's what this means. He doesn't come with any particular theology to push. He's saying, here's how Luke wrote this, and here's how he tells his story. And he says, Tannehill, who's certainly not prejudiced one way or the other, as far as end times, says that very clearly in Luke Acts, you have a promise of a restoration of Israel. It's always held out before the people that God's going to restore Israel. Yep. Same way with the ascension and the return, and with the, the heaven receiving Jesus. Until. So this is the period where Jesus is ascended and preached the gospel to all nations. Right. And then when he returned. And why was, why was all this preached to Jews? These were all Jewish hearers at the time. 
because they were asking this question. If this one was the son of David who's the Messiah, then why isn't he on the throne? And the apostles answer, yes. <laughs> At the right hand of the Father in heaven. Right? And the reason he's not on the throne is he's not going to be on the literal throne on earth until he returns. And then he'll sit, restore all things and sit on the throne. That was the answer. We better go quick to, so everybody gets to read their verse. Kathy, um, Ephesians 1, 20-22. Yes, Jesus is in heaven and he is ruling and he has all authority and power. Amen. And he's coming back. Okay, Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. All right, where's Christ? Right hand of the Father. All right, we're getting some good theology today. On Peter three twenty-two. Was gone into heaven is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to Him. There we go. And why does the Bible repeat that so often? <laughs> good, good answer, Dan. I think it must be important. All right. Well, 1 John 2, 1 and 2, and I'll, then we'll be done here. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. There it is. So there's our defense attorney. So if we sin, we've got a defense attorney. So that we'd be in big trouble when we went before the judge without him. And he actually not only defends us, he paid the paid the penalty. Amen. Thank you. What a delight to be able to talk about our common salvation that Jude Jude talks about. So uh, next week we'll begin with Hebrews 9:25. I think we'll actually. Fe- Finish Hebrews 9, maybe even get into Hebrews 10. You never know.